Yeah, I remember. This is a little bit similar about a different age in which we live. And yeah. And trying to witness to people in a different kind of way. Right. And it, and it goes along with the paragraph where he talks about atheism and the atheists. When you talk to an atheist 30 years ago, he knew the God that you were talking about. Yeah. But now it's a whole different conversation with right. people like that. So I, I, I did comment on that. And if I ever see words, I'm not sure what the meaning is. I always look them up. So I look yeah. up commiserate and sympathize. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yep. So You're sharing in their misery. <laughs> and I, anyway, uh, but anyway, I thought, I thought it was a good introduction. Mm -hmm. Carson. Of course, Carson, we ask if he, he is still alive, mm -hmm. born in 46. He's written lots of books. I'm not sure I've read one of his. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I feel like I've read one of his books. I just can't remember. It's been a while, but yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. One little. This is no big deal. But yeah. When I was walking up the hill and I came around the bend, there were three deer. Staring right at me. Okay. And I thought, this is going to be the greatest picture, but we just stood there staring at each other. <laughs> and I knew it. So as soon as I said, I got to get to my phone to take a picture. And as soon as I did this, mm -hmm. off they, they go. all scattered. Yeah. So in one little movement, they right. ran. But right. I did get a jump, trying to jump over the fence. So yeah. I got the back of them. Like, sure. Like, that was kind of neat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's neat. Is there anything else from this book uh, that... Stuck out to you as you were reading something you underlined, something that, or a question that you had concerning something that was stated. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. Seen a lot of it in writing and heard a lot of it. Yeah. Why do I need to go there? I can just be a spiritual person on my own. You know? I don't need the church. I don't need a particular stance on anything. I just I just have a relationship with God. That's all I need. Okay, how did you have a how do you have a relationship with God? They don't have an answer. How did you enter into this relationship with God? I don't know. It just we're all we're all children of God, right? <laughs> yeah. Any other observations or thoughts? Well, if not, well, we can take a look at this um, handout that I gave you. Now the Ford is, you know, said the Ford's by D. A. Carson. For those of you who are unfamiliar with who he is, he has a little synopsis at the top of Forward. Um, professor of New Testament Trinity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, he's 
uh, had a number of different roles over the years. Most of his career he spent in the university um, um, atmosphere. He was, I think he was a pastor for a few years in the 70s, um, but then the rest of the time I believe he's been in universities. Um, and then it says he's the president of the Gospel Coalition. Um, that's kind of a, I don't know exactly know how to describe the Gospel Coalition. Has anybody ever heard of it before? Because I know it's, it's a website where you can go and they have all sorts of articles and videos, articles, you know, modern, modern issues from a biblical perspective. They also have a conference that they do every year, um, which I think the next conference they have is going to be in Indianapolis in next April, I think. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a conglomeration of different Christians who converse on Christian stuff. <laughs> But it's really good material. I've read, I've read through a lot. I've you know, followed the website a little bit. and It's good material. If you want to write it down as something that you want to look at for a little bit, you can check out the website and read through some of the articles on there. But, so he, he would be the president of that. Um, but, but that's neither here nor there. Just kind of an introduction to who D.A. Carson is. But he, has, he is an author. He's, uh, he's authored many books. Um, uh, but... The number one here on the sheet says, you know, in this introduction, he talks about different cultural problems that are facing those who would share the gospel. And here I've listed a few things that he's, he's mentioned, talked about a little bit. None of this stuff, obviously, he's gone to in, into too much detail. As this forward is, what, one, two, three pages. So there's not a whole lot of detail that you can get into in three pages. But we can at least talk about some of this stuff. On page 7, you know, the letter A, one of the cultural problems facing those who would share the gospel would be the biblical illiteracy of our modern uh, culture. And that's in the middle of the second paragraph on page 7. Um, starts out, the, dis- the discouraging changes are easy to list. Rising biblical illiteracy means that there is less and less cultural consensus about things like the Ten Commandments. And stop there. So, if you were to ask somebody, what are the Ten Commandments? Most people are not going to be able to tell you, whereas several decades ago, people would at least be able to tell you what the Ten Commandments were. Of course, I don't know if that's... I wasn't around a few decades ago, but um, uh, people in general don't know scriptural basics like they used to. Any, can anybody offer any examples of things they've noticed in conversations um, with people? Uh, things that it just seemed like were commonplace, perhaps when you were younger, but now it's just like, what? You know, or things that were never in question, but now they're in question, or, or what? Any examples that we can think of in our modern society about how people just don't know the scriptures? They don't know the basics that seemed to be commonplace not that long ago. Yeah, people don't, you know, understand scriptural teaching on different decisions that are made politically or socially. I had a couple senior in high school girls stuck their head in the. No, yeah, yeah, they did. They stuck their head in the door, and they said, uh, "What's the uh, what's the big deal behind the Big Friday?" Mm-hmm. They didn't even know what. Right. What that was all about. Yeah. Senior in high school. Yeah, they didn't know what Good Friday was. And it was the Friday before Easter, but... <laughs> get out of school. What? Yeah, you get out of school, get a day off, but what's Good Friday? Anything else? I'd just like to relate this, is don't believe Christ was 
the Son of God, yeah. like Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. But yet they're ready for those Christian holidays to get out of school like the rest yeah. of the kids do. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll take it off, for sure. And I've known people, I've, I've met people who, like, you ever heard the Christmas story? You know what Christmas is? You know, I've, no, I've never heard the Christmas story before. I don't know anything about Bethlehem or, you know, if you, which blows my mind because haven't you watched Charlie Brown <laughs> in Christmas or, you know, the scene in Nativity and wondered what in the world a bunch of donkeys are doing in front of a building <laughs> in a stable? But I've met people who have no idea what the... They've never heard the Christmas story, Christ's birth. You know, just simple things like that, where you really, that really cause a gospel sharer to have to go back to the very, very, very basics of everything. <laughs> because people don't know anything of where anything started. We, they've heard about Jesus. They've, they, perhaps they saw the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Um, or something, but that was just entertainment. It's just story. People just assume that this stuff is stories that kids are told, so that they'll be good little kids, um, give them a good foundation or whatever. But as far as what the Bible teaches, who this Jesus was, why in the world do we even believe that he's God's son? Um, this stuff is completely um, um, foreign to them. It's just alien language. And then let her... it's, it's interesting that's listed there because that's one of the first things that missionaries have to do and to preach the gospel. Right. And that is something that we also have to take into consideration when we're this this is why it's a cultural problem. It's something that makes it harder for us to share the gospel. Because we it's helpful for us to know what is this person understanding when I'm talking? What are they actually computing? You know, because we perhaps have grown up learning scripture for years and years and years and years and years. So some of these concepts are just natural. They flow off our tongue. They're easy for us to, to contemplate and formulate and pull things together. But these people, the people that we're talking to in today's generation, have no idea what atonement means, a redemption, reconciliation. There were kids that I worked with at the daycare center when I, when I, I mentioned the word obey, and they're like, What's obey mean? So they, they're never told to obey. You know, so it's like you really have to do a lot more hearing and listening and asking questions so that you can gauge what does this person actually understand? Where are they at in regards to their biblical literacy? Some people are very literate. Some people did grow up in it. You know, I counseled a guy who he was in when I was at Wayside where he... Um, Grew up in the church for the first 20 years of his life. Was very well versed. After that, he left the church for the next 30 years. Never stepped a foot in a church. You know, he's a hardcore, you know, heavy metal rocker. You know, did drugs, alcoholic. You know, for the next 30 years of his life. And then he's back at Wayside because his life fell apart. He knew all this. He knew all about the stuff I was talking about because he had learned it when he was a young child. Um, he just walked away from it all for 30 years. Um, but you don't run into that very often as much these days. People don't have an upbringing in the church. So you really have to keep in mind 
is this person going to be able to understand what I'm actually saying? Are these words computing? So you do have to you have to start out understanding that if I'm going to share the gospel to these people, like missionaries do, they'll go in there and they will. A lot of missionaries start by opening schools for children, so that they can have a, a place of learning where they can teach. Teach. You have to teach the information. You have to make sure that they have the pieces that they can put together so that they can understand the gospel. Because a lot of the elements in the gospel are kind of abstract. How are you going to understand something that's abstract if you don't even have the rudimentary elementary particles of the teaching in the scriptures? And even people who have a good background in scripture, they have a background in New Testament scripture. Old Testament scripture actually provides a lot of those rudimentary details that formed the gospel. People have next to no knowledge of what's going on in the Old Testament. Outside of Noah and the ark and you know seven days of creation. Jayla. One of the things we run into nowadays is there's so many other things to fill the mind. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, back in the good old days, as we say, people were ready to hear something anyway. Right. So they drew the big crowds and so on. Right. Now, I, I'm just overfilled with stuff. Right. You know, including advertising. Yeah. So my mind doesn't, doesn't hunger after something. Right. Even right. curious. Exactly. Because if they're curious, all they have to do is Google it. <laughs> right? <laughs> they can look it up on YouTube. Plenty of other things to do. <clears throat> right. Immediately. Right. Yeah. And so they don't see creation. Right. I mean, how many people or even young adults go out and see the stars at night? Yeah. I mean, really see the stars because they're at that time the TV is on until it's time to go to bed. Right. Or, you know, or they're on their internet or they're, you know, right. on their smartphone. And it's not seeing, they're not maybe getting knowledge from those. Right. But they're still, even the creation itself. Mm-hmm. They're missing out on what God teaches through the creation. Right. The experiential life is, has been overshadowed by just the, the app life. <laughs> yeah. Experience. Right. Psalms 19 and 1 and 2 just wouldn't have any bearing. I had a class, one of the smart, smartest I ever had at Leesburg. Yeah. And uh, there weren't any of them as seniors. Yeah. I've never seen any. Yeah. Right. 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 Donna? And I agree with what you're saying, but I think we have to be careful in saying that everybody does that because I know a lot of people that live with their kids with how many right. hours they can be on their phone, right. computer, play games, all that. And yeah. I think as we're speaking, we need to be careful that we're not all inclusive. If yeah. anybody has a phone, mm-hmm. they're bad. Right. Because there's a lot of people working very, very hard to control mm-hmm. those things. And I, yeah. You're right. I agree with you. And some kids don't even have cell phones yet, mm-hmm. when others have had them for years. Right. So just a caution. It is a, yeah. It's a culture yeah. that we're, I right. know, that the kids are growing up 
Right. Yeah. Yes. And it's a worthy caution because it is hard. It is, it is dangerous. It can be dangerous. Yes, it can. Offensive too. Right. Years ago, how many kids were outside playing and you had to beg him to get or pull them in at night to mm-hmm. get them to bed. Right. Our kids were just like that. They yeah. were out and just had, and they didn't have these little mm-hmm. tools that they could just get their noses in. Right. Yep. And just kind of waste away the day. Um, and all this, and all of this does play a part in the the relative biblical illiteracy of the modern day. Um, the second item, which is also found on say page seven that I wrote down, was you know a general lack of uh, honor and dignity. It says in the middle of that same uh, paragraph, honor is an old-fashioned word and easily mocked. People don't know what honor is, like respect. Respect? What's that? Honor? No, why? I mean, my parents do what I want. You know? I don't have to honor them. I don't respect their word. Turn around. And there's just very little sense of I need to do as I'm told because I'm told to do it and because of the person who's telling me. Not because, now, now today day, today's day and age is the product of psychological shift where parents have been told you have to explain why you're telling them everything that you're telling them. And now that we're explaining, you know, there was good intentions behind it. You don't want your children to grow up as being drones, um, just, you know, blindly doing whatever they're told to do. You want them to process and learn how to think critically. But the side product of that is, now the kids question everything and they're not going to listen to you unless they agree with the reasons behind why you're telling them to do what they're doing. So there goes, there goes honor and dignity. Any comments or anything on that? I think you see that in all ages. Mm-hmm. Today it's not just the young. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And that's kind of like we've talked about before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this coming back to evangelism... People aren't going to people today, old or young, have a hard time believing what you're saying to be true just because the Bible says it. There's no honor or dignity for the scriptures. If they don't like your scriptural reasoning, well, why do I need to believe that? That's what the Bible says. But why do I need to believe the Bible? What's so good about that? That's just an ancient document, manuscripted thousands of years ago. Which plays into the third item, letter C. The truth is flexible. Truth is relative. I can believe whatever I want to believe. I don't have to believe what the Bible says just because the Bible says it. It's not absolute truth. What is truth? <laughs> you know? So, go ahead. Well, you see, <clears throat> truth, going back to our dignity as well, mm-hmm. just look at States in particular, the uh, Kavanaugh, uh, uh, all the Senate, all our leadership. This goes all the way down our culture. Right. They're going to kneel for the flag or yeah. not. Or right. They're going to <clears throat> everybody's, what is truth? Yeah. <laughs> there is no absolutes. Right. And it's all made. Mm-hmm. Flexible, right. Mm-hmm. And that's in education, a very pragmatic and 
education, you know. Yeah. Right. The truth is what you think it is. Right. Or if you make it flexible. Right. Yeah, flexible. It bends and bends with cultural changes. The Constitution. Who cares what they meant when they said it? Just let's just make it mean whatever we think it should mean for today's modern generation. And with the words of men, you can kind of, you know, but it's neither here nor there with the words of men because men are fallible. But we also do that to Scripture. Well, I like the way that sounds, so I'll use that in a nice little meme on Facebook. But the rest of it, eh, I don't know. This self-sacrifice, you know, believing in Jesus, the only way to God. I don't know if I, I really accept that. I mean, what about those really good people who are Buddhists? I mean, are they going to go to hell? They're really good people. <clears throat> I mean, Gandhi fought for social justice. He fought against, you know, uh, he fought against war and um, those types of things and he was a really good guy. Is he, are you telling me he's not going to be in heaven because he didn't believe in Jesus? You know? And there are questions that when you really think, okay, so the natural man looks at this, it's a good question. It's, a, it's a, you know, something that is worth thinking about. Like, you know, family members that we don't want to think went to hell. You know, but what would we want to say at their funeral? Oh, they're a really good person. You know, surely God would have accepted them. That's what we hear sometimes. They were a good person. Surely they're before God today. And that's how we want to, and that's kind of how we want to believe when it's somebody that we loved that passed away. But we're unsure of whether or not they were a believer. We just want to think that they're in heaven. Because we don't want to think that they're not. I think I brought this book up for some reason several weeks ago, but the book I'm Okay, You're Okay was written probably 30, 40 years ago. So mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a very popular book, but it was saying, I can believe what I want to believe, yeah. I can believe what you want to believe, we're all okay, right. we're all going to the same place. Right. And uh, it reminded me too, when we were talking, you were talking there, uh, a guy I've been working for there in Ottawa made this comment, and you know, I'm, you were talking about we can't judge people on just appearance, but just things that he said, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I don't think he's a Christian, but he made this comment the other day to me. He said, I'm happy and I'm healthy and yeah. I do what I want to do. What more can a man ask for? Yeah. And that's kind of the way man looks at things. Right. If things are going okay for him and I'm doing good and I'm happy and mm-hmm. I can go on a trip whenever I want, what more can a guy ask for? Right. But if they don't trust in the Lord, they're... Right. Yeah. People don't want to hear that, though, because that's not... That puts themselves under somebody else's control. God's. And we don't want to be under somebody else's control. We just want to be happy, healthy, and be able to do what we want. You know, sure, within reason. Have a good retirement. Yep. And that kind of goes under letter D. The unbridled pursuit of the American dream. Where... We're so, we don't have time for the gospel. We don't have time. We don't have a concern for what scriptures have to say because all I want to do is develop a life that where I'm okay. Just like you were saying, Rich. Where I'm happy, I'm healthy. I have a decent amount of power to do the things that make me happy. I'm free to live the type of life that I want to live. 
And that's what I want. I don't want to follow God. I don't want to follow these rules of some sort of religion. Those kind of get in the way of my pursuit of the American dream. Of being, being free to pursue the life of my choosing. So we have an unbridled pursuit of the American dream that's interfering with people's desire to hear what you're saying when you're presenting the gospel. Because it just interferes. It's adding something to their life that they, that they don't see it as a, a pro. They don't see it as a necessary thing. It's just, yeah, that's something that you can pursue. You're free to pursue that, whatever you want to do. But for me, that's just interference of my pursuits. I, I may even believe what you're saying is true, but I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want to believe it because it interferes with my pursuit of my dreams. And then the last thing, letter E on number one, Christians are assumed to be anti-intellectual. And the bot- on the page eight, the bottom of that top paragraph, it says, Christians are increasingly dismissed as intellectually inferior, or worse yet, narrow and blind, with the presumption to insist that this Jesus is the, of theirs is the only way to God. And in addition, he says, Christians are hate-filled bigots who should be ignored and perhaps suppressed. We're just anti-intellectual because we just we believe we because we believe what we're told. See, so it goes back to that whole psychological, you know, you're supposed to be able to process and and and. Uh, Think about what you're being told and make, come to your own conclusions. You know, rather than seeing this as an authority, the scriptures as an authority, no, that just makes us anti-intellectual. It makes us stupid. We don't think for ourselves. We're suppressed. And frankly, some of us are, us in general. Create The church has become one of the least creative places on the planet. Um, because we don't think for ourselves, in a sense. We don't, you know, we should be taking this God at His word, but also processing it. So a lot of us, we want the easy route. We just want to believe it. Okay, we read it, I believe it, moving on. I had a roommate in college like that who kept failing all of his, his speeches in speech class because he was supposed to be presenting a case for, you know, creation or whatever it was. And all he would say in his speech was, well, God said it, so I believe it. What more do you want from me? <laughs> so he kept failing all of his, he failed the class because he wouldn't actually process and learn and understand what's being said. And some of us, we like that. It's easier. I read what's being said, I believe it, and that's good. That's a childlike faith, but God also wants us to learn, to dig, to pursue. But, that's, but the point being, the world around us sees the church as, I mean, that's, a place, that's not really a place where much learning is happening. It's anti-intellectual. They're not, process, they're not processors. They're, they're, not, they're not critical thinkers. If they were critical thinkers, they'd see all the problems in Scripture, like I do. So we're dismissed. When we start talking about the gospel, we're dismissed. Like you just, okay, I understand what you're saying. It's kind of easy to understand the facts. But come on, this is the real world, people. Um, when I first started teaching there in Elmer, Marazine Valley, in my uh, junior 11th grade literature book, believe it or not, they had sinners in the hands of an angry God in there. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because they wanted him to believe what Jonathan Edwards was writing. He was considered maybe one of the top writers of all time. Yeah. Even the non-believers said, boy, this guy can really present his case well. Yeah. And so he was considered a great writer. But right. But it's interesting that they even put it in a public book like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I did have a kid's reading. But, uh, and you know, when you read people like that, if they just, if they give it a little chance, they see these guys aren't stupid or dumb. Yeah. Like Spurgeon. They just right. sometimes dismiss when you start talking about God and you believe, mm-hmm. you know, if you say something, you'll go to heaven. Those people have to be stupid. But if yeah. they really look at it. Right. Right. And it's helpful if we do know what we're talking about, <laughs> which is part of the go- which is part of sharing the gospel. There is a sharing of the gospel where you share the basic truths, and then there's a part of the gospel where you're actually able to answer the questions that are asked. If you can't answer their questions, or if they present a counter argument that you know, you don't know how to come back to, well, they're, they're just going to see themselves as right. Because that's how we do it, right? If we win an argument, well, then we see ourselves as being right. Even though we both could be wrong. <laughs> but I won the argument, so I'm right. Um, that's not to say we're supposed to know every single thing that is to be known, but we should be learning. But what are some cultural positives? Okay, so the letter A is a little bit counterintuitive. There's a decline in church attendance. How is that a cultural positive? On page 8, he writes, um, at the top of the second paragraph, as the social cost of claiming to be a Christian increases, so by that he's saying, it's, it's actually becoming a little bit less trendy to, become a, to be a Christian in our society here in the States. Um, it's not a normative thing. And... Actually, people are enduring a little bit more persecution than they used to. People are being made fun of, bullied, because they're Christians. Um, So as the social cost of claiming to Christian increases, the percentage of nominal Christians decreases. Now, what would a nominal Christian be? Just in name only. That's what nominal means. It means in name. Namos. The Greek word namos means name. Um, You're claiming to be a Christian, but you really have no fruits. There's nothing else to prove your claim. Uh, So the nominal Christians are decreasing. To put this another way, the decline in church numbers over the past quarter century is largely a decline in the nominal believers. And that means the percentage of Christians who are in for the long haul, regardless of whether they are lauded in the culture at large, is greatly increasing. So does that make sense? What? Purifying the church. Purifying the church. Separating the sheep from the goats which is something that persecution has always done. Persecution has always spread and purified the church. So just to put this another way, you know, just to, you know, it's, um, I had an illustration on the top of my head and then it just left. Um, but is that, do people, you guys understand what he's saying here? The harder things get, the fewer people are there that are just kind of casually there. If it's hard to do something, then only the people who are serious about it will go and, and, and do it. And that's happening. It's gradually happening over, as the years progress in America. And, well, this guy is writing from London. It's, London and America, our cultures are kind of shifting at a similar pace. Um, 
the harder it becomes to be a Christian, the people who are Christians still are actually true, solid, firm believers in general. We're talking broad scale. This is a forward. He's obviously going to be talking broad scale. So B goes along with that, increased percentage of devoted disciples, which we just discussed along with that. For the sake of time, we won't continue in that. And on page 9, he talks about there are clearer responses to the gospel. On page 9, let's see here. That the start of the first paragraph, when the surrounding culture, on page 9, when the surrounding cultures become as negative towards faithful Christianity as they are, we must not forget that we are not the first generation, generation to face such challenges. In his day, Jesus asserted that it was precisely because he spoke the truth that many did not believe. There are times when this truth is so out of phase with popular beliefs that it becomes positive, positively repulsive to many people. When that happens, the proclamation of the truth has the effect of blinding eyes, deafening ears, and hardening hearts, as Isaiah found out. So what that's kind of saying is, at this time of, in our culture, when the gospel is proclaimed, there is more of a definitive response, whether you clearly accept it or you clearly reject it. There are fewer fence-setters, if that makes sense. So there are clearer responses to the gospel. You either accept it or you reject it. There are fewer people still kind of sitting on the fence. Does it not mean that there are not people sitting on the fence? But because of the cultural shifts, people make up their minds a little bit more easily. Any questions or comments? On number three. So to, to kind of wrap things up, I want to look at three different passages. Things to remember as we anticipate fruitfulness in our pursuits to evangelize the world around us, we need to keep some things in mind. Look in 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings 19. Verses 9 through 14. And then verse 18 says, and there, this is talking about Elijah, and there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. So right there we, we can see just in that sometimes you're going to feel lonely as you're going out trying to tell people the truth because you're going to be rejected. So one thing we need to keep in mind is that you're going to be rejected. Elijah himself said, I've been zealous. Sometimes we think that just because we're zealous about something that we automatically need to be bearing fruit. And that's not always the case. And fruit by fruit, I mean immediate results. We want immediate results. If we don't see immediate results, then it must be broken. It's not working. Elijah here is saying, I've been zealous, but everything is going wrong. Everybody's rejecting it. Nobody's accepting the word. 
And then God said in verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. When he heard this small voice, Elijah wrapped his face and stood at the entrance of the cave. Why would he wrap his face and go stand at the entrance of the cave? After hearing a still small voice. Because Elijah understood that that's where the presence of God was. And he didn't want to see the face of God and be killed. <laughs> and this is in response to, to Elijah complaining. I have been so zealous. I've been on fire. Did you see? I just did this thing. On, on, we, just, we just did this thing on Mount Carmel. We brought down fire from heaven. I killed the prophets of Baal. Huge success. But still, nobody's following you. Everybody wants to kill me. In a way, I think God is telling Elijah... Your zeal is not what makes you successful. Just like I, my presence is not in the wind or the, or the quake. It's the still small voice. Remember, it's the, the voice of the Spirit that goes to and fro. You don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. But it's by that Spirit that we're born again. We cannot put our confidence in our methods cannot put our confidence in the fact that we're excited and zealous and bold. We should be excited and zealous and bold. But that's not where our confidence lies. And he goes on and says, and you know, he just said, you know, he kind of says the same thing again in verse 14. But just down in verse 18, God says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You may feel lonely, and you may feel powerless, you may feel like nobody's doing this. Nobody is going out for the sake of the Lord with me. But we, there are. We're not alone in this. God has hired many farmers to go out into his wheat fields and gather in the wheat, gather in the harvest. You don't see them all the time. But God is empowering a great many people to do this thing that he's going to empower us to do. We're going to feel alone. We're going to feel like giving up because it's like, ah, what's the point? Nothing's going on. But something is going on. It's just not going on the way you would expect it to because we like immediate results. We like quantifiable results. But the kingdom of God does not operate like the kingdom of man. And to plagiarize um, Kirk here, turn to Amos chapter 7. I guess it's not plagiarism if I give him credit. So don't call the cops just yet. What? <laughs> Amos chapter 7, verses 10 to 16, and this is a little bit just kind of a, a little synopsis of our, cult, of our own culture. Then Amaziah, Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the middle of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. 
Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There, eat bread, and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary, and it's the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not stout against the house of Isaac. And then he goes on and condemns him for saying these things. So this is a synopsis of our culture and us. Our culture says, we are fine without your message. We don't need it. Have it for yourself, but stop pushing it on us. We don't need this. We are fine just the way we are. The end is not near. (laughs) We're not all going to die and go to hell. You can believe what you want to believe, whatever makes you feel good about yourself. Just take it with you and go somewhere else with it and keep it to yourself. And then we're kind of like Amos. Not anything special. I was just, I'm not, I was no prophet. I I wasn't even the son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder. I tended to the sycamore fruit. Nothing special about me. I didn't go to school for this. I wasn't brought up in some sort of elite um, tribe. But the Lord took me as I was following my flocks. And he said, go and prophesy. And that's what I'm doing. This isn't our message. We need to keep this in mind. We are not special people going out in, in the authority of our own name with a great degree or breeding. (laughs) We're just normal people. That's who God calls. We talked about that this morning. We're just normal people. We're nothing special. But God called us and gave us a message. Put it in our mouth. Puts it in our hands right here. And he told us, go and give this to the people. That's why we do it. Because God gave it to us and told us to go and give it to the people. And then John 4, 34 to 48. To 38. John chapter 4. Thirty-four to forty-eight. Or thirty thirty-eight. Jesus says to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Now he's talking about those who labored, he's specifically talking about the prophets that went before them. They set the scene with their prophecies. They made the paths, John the Baptist being one of the prophets, making straight the paths, setting the stage. Now the disciples, and then you and me, partake in the gospel that the mystery revealed. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to wait, okay, because the harvest is already ready to bring in. 
The time is right when I say it's right, and the time is right. So, look at the fields. And when you go and reap, you're going to gather fruits for eternal life. Say this, this book that we're going through about evangelism, I mean, this is this evangelism. It's not just some sort of program. And I don't really like evangelistic programs. I, I like it when it's more organic. Um, people to people. Not through a program. But we need to keep in mind that this is eternal fruitfulness. This isn't just something that you can take or leave. This is what God made us for. To multiply from the foundations of the earth. To go out and multiply. That's just part of who, that's part of our command. That's part of our commission. As human beings, as the children of the king, to go and multiply. And in doing so, we reap eternal rewards. I don't know what that looks like. But we can't be satisfied just living in our eternal, our, our finite abundance, sitting around doing our own thing. There are eternal rewards to go be had. So let's go and uh, go forth in the name of Christ, by his command, Bring people into the fold. Any questions or comments? I thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and I thank you that we have been brought in, that somebody, mother, father, grandparent, just somebody has brought us to the gospel, and that you have blown upon us that we might see and be saved. Thank you that we have been recipients of the labors of others so that we can know that we have eternal life in the Son. Pray that we would not take this for granted, that we are simply they who have been grafted in. Let us not forget all that have gone before us so that we, today, might know the truth. Pray that we wouldn't take it for granted and that you would be glorified in us as we go forth and seek to reap a harvest. It's for your name we do this. In Jesus' name, amen.